Hi, this is Dr. Lat Mansour, Research Lead of Health via Modern Nutrition here on HVMN Podcast. In this episode, we have Drew Manning, the New York Times bestselling author of the book Fit to Fat to Fit, as well as the creator of the TV show Fit to Fat to Fit. In this episode, we talked about his transformation where he gained 75 pounds and lost it all in six months. We talked about his exercise regime, his diet and nutrition plans, his emotional and mental state during this transformation, and he also shared his personal struggles during this journey and how he overcame them in order to reach his goals. We focused a lot about self-love because a lot of people underestimate the importance of self-love and emotional and mental state during such transformation. So if you are struggling with body image and identity, weight loss, or even self-love, this episode is for you. So tune in and enjoy this episode. Thank you. Hi, Drew. How are you? Dr. Lett, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm Thanks very good. On. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on to HVMN Podcast. I know you have been on HVMN Podcast before. You were interviewed by Jeff um, when you went through all the transformation. And I know since then, you have gone through another transformation. And I know there is, there is no two transformation that is alike, even if it's by the same person. So I'm really excited today to really, you know, let you share your story with um, our audience and our listeners. Yeah, I'm excited to, to share the, the updated version, the 2.0 version of the transformation, because there's a lot of new lessons that I learned. So I appreciate you having me on and looking forward to this. So thank you. Yeah, it's really amazing how, you know, even though you've done it once and you do it exact same thing, but the things that you've learned, it's an augmentation of your first journey, isn't it? It's so true because the different experiences you know, shape you in different ways and place you in a different place in your life. You know, everyone changes, I think, for the most part, you know, fast forward almost 10 years mm -hmm. from the last time I did it. So a lot of different life situations, you know, the first time I was married, the second time I was divorced, but in a relationship, my girls were older, you know, there yeah. were little kids in the first one. They're, you know, almost teenagers in the second one. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Different priorities yeah. in life, different focuses in life, different goals, ambitions. I think all those really play into, you know, how you structure your transformation and how you adapt to your changes, as well as how you can share those insights with your clients and, and with our listeners. So super excited. So let's, let's dive straight into this and um, let's talk a bit about your background, where you come from, like what sort of areas were you in before that sort of drove you into this this whole journey and sharing this wonderful you know knowledge and journey with the rest of, of the world yeah yeah i'll help you connect the dots of where i've come from which kind of tells you why i did what i did so basically i grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters all from the same mom and dad you know no twins no adoptions just my parents were one of those people that uh, I like to have a lot of kids. So there's 11 of us. Um, we all played sports. I played football and wrestling, American football and wrestling from a very young age. So I was always very active. I was just part of our family. I kind of did what my older brothers did and I excelled at sports. And a byproduct of that was me being in shape pretty much my entire life. Never mm -hmm. knew any different. It was always came easily for me because that's all I did was stay active, stay fit. <clears throat> and then you know, that kind of uh, gave me this perception of what health and fitness was, which for me was something that came easy, like, oh, you just eat healthy food and you mm -hmm. exercise really hard and you see these results. And so that carried over into 2009 when I became certified as a personal trainer. 
Um, up until that point, I was actually in the medical field uh, doing something called neuromonitoring. And uh, so I was in the OR a lot working with uh, people getting neck surgery and back surgery. Mm -hmm. um, and I was doing part-time personal training on the side. And then, um, and so that's kind of where this fit to fit to fit idea stemmed from was here I was someone who had never been overweight a day in my life, mm -hmm. became certified as a personal trainer, right? Because I liked health and fitness. Right. I wanted to help people. Right. And then I tried to help people transform who had been overweight pretty much every day of their life. <laughs> and there was an obvious disconnect between me and my mentality and my perception of transformation, thinking it was easy, and them thinking it was so hard. And I couldn't understand why it was hard for them. I couldn't understand why they struggled with their nutrition, with their exercise. And, um, and so I, I went on this discovery to, or this journey to discover why it was so hard for my clients, but it was easy for me. And then that's what led me down this path of doing fit to fat to fit 1.0. And this is back in 2011 or so. And so that's kind of the genesis of my brand and my story of fit to fat to fit mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> was stemmed from that kind of disconnect between me as a trainer yep. and my clients. And one of my clients at the time told me, he's like, Drew, you don't understand how hard it is for me or for people like me, because for you, it's always been easy. It's, it's been easy your whole life. Yeah. And I kind of took that to heart. I'm like, man, you're right. I don't understand why it's so hard. It just seems so simple. Like, yeah. why doesn't everybody just do it? <laughs> so, yeah. so that's how it became, um, fit to fat to fit. Yes. Yeah. So th that's very interesting because I come from a very different background. I grew up mm. overweight and my family have mm. very high prevalence of obesity, diabetes, and we have very unhealthy eating habits. So we'll mm -hmm. eat a lot of carbs and, and growing up in Malaysia, like, <laughs> you know, rice, noodles, a lot of sure. carbs are part of the staple, right? And mm -hmm. always growing up, I thought I would just be like my relatives. I would be like my aunts, my uncles. I'll be overweight. I was already overweight. I'm just going to be an mm. overweight adult when I grow up. Not until... I learned more about physiology, metabolism, and chronic diseases, where I know that I, there are things that I can do to change my life around. And I like um, a quote that sort of, uh, that you said in our first, uh, in your first episode with HBMM podcast, when you said um, people eventually identify themselves with their self-image. You know, like over yeah. time, they just can't see themselves being anything else or anyone else apart from what they see in the mirror. And I think that is absolutely true because I went through it myself. I thought, you know, mm -hmm. that was my fate from now till I die. And then I realized yeah. that is absolutely untrue. And yes, the journey wasn't easy, but it was doable. So, yeah. so, so for you, what was the biggest challenge for you and for your clients to start with? I think, I think that's, that's the best way to start this because yeah. because the first step will always be the hardest step it's like writing an essay on an empty page that is the hardest step so so what is the biggest challenge and how did you overcome it yeah so for me it stemmed from my first journey of doing fit to fat to fit in 2011 when i first started to gain the weight you know i built this identity uh, around my body image like you mentioned we like so many of us do at some point we buy into this myth that we are our bodies and our bodies define us our bodies are our identity in society because society labels us as oh your your body looks like this you're this type of person so if you're overweight okay society labels as you as an overweight person or if you're fit 
society labels you as a fit person. You kind of buy into that mentality because you don't know any different. So when I did fit to fit to fit the first time, even gaining the first 10 or 20 pounds was so uncomfortable for me. I kind of had an identity crisis. I, I freaked out. I right. wanted to go up to strangers and explain to them that I wasn't really overweight, that it was just an experiment. And so, because I, I was so uncomfortable, yeah. I didn't really know who I was with this new body. And so I kind of freaked out. But what that taught me was, you know, obviously it was very humble and this took me a while to learn it. But once I did realize that I am more than my body, that was a wake up call for me to help me realize that people are not their bodies. Their bodies are a part of them. And once you realize that, once you separate your body image from your self image, then you get to choose what your identity becomes at that point. So after doing that first experiment of, uh, in 2011 of Fit to Fat to Fit 1.0, I was able to disconnect from my body image as my self image. And what that did was help me to build a healthier relationship with my body instead of, uh, instead of seeing my body as this, you know, permanent defined, um, you know, um, um, picture of who I was. I realized that I could change that if I wanted to. And people can change that because our bodies can change in an instant. Yeah. You could get in a car crash and lose some limbs. Your body is not the same. And yeah. so if you create an identity around your body, you're setting yourself up for some major pain, emotional pain in the future because at some point your body is going to age. It's going to wrinkle. It's going to deteriorate. It's going to change over the years. And you could be skinny. You could be fat. You could be fit. You could be ripped. You could be lean. You could be all these things if you want to go down that path like you you, you were able to disconnect and create this new body image where you're healthy and fit now, but not letting that become your identity, I think is super important because I was drew the fit guy mm -hmm. for so long mm -hmm. and for 30 years that when I did fit to fat, fat to fit, that's when I had that freak out moment. That's when I had that identity crisis. But from that, I helped me develop a, a, a healthier self image, not creating my body image as my self image and disconnecting from my body as my identity, but seeing it as a part of me that's a healthy relationship with yourself yeah. so that you can move forward on this health journey that most people are on, yeah. not defining themselves by their body. And that's kind of where I help people. And that's what helps people not get upset when they jump on the scale and they don't see the number they want to. Um, it, it helps them with the, the emotional side of transformation so much uh, because they define their value or their worth based on, you know, if they're skinny, if the weight on the scale is a certain number and if they're not, then they're a failure and they're failing at life and then they beat themselves up. My goal is to disrupt that and break that perception and shift that to a healthier mindset to see themselves as more than just their body. Yeah, that is super interesting, which is one of the things that I would love to get into in a bit as well yeah. in terms of the emotional, the mindset. And you don't have to hate your, yourself. You don't have to hate your body in order to make a change, in order to be healthier right and this is the body yeah. positivity movement but at the same time you know one could also argue you know body, po body positivity can also lead to indulgence of you know going into the wrong direction of health so you want to be able to love your body enough to want to be healthy to want to treat your body right give the right food do the right things rest well so that you go towards a direction of health. So we'll go into that in a bit. So let's talk yeah. about the transformation itself. Like how did you structure the transformation? Um, would you yeah. structure it differently for yourself versus different types of clients? What are the different archetypes that you have found in your experience? Um, you know, what structure fits them best? That's a really good question. So when I did this in 2011, mm -hmm. <laughs> my knowledge was limited to what was mainstream at the time. So. Mm -hmm. 
you know, keto, for example, was not really mainstream back in 2011. So, you know, my mentality was more of the mindset of the mainstream media, which was eat every two or three hours to stoke your metabolism, right? To keep your metabolism going. That's kind of what everyone believed at the time. And so I was a product of that environment thinking, oh, I need to eat every two or three hours. So the way I structured my, well, first of all, the way I structured the weight gain part (laughs) was pretty much, uh, you know, eat a lot of highly uh, processed food that we have here in America. So like sugary cereals, sugary sodas, juices, granola bars, chips, cookies, crackers, all the processed food that is cheap, affordable, affordable, convenient. And I'll be totally honest with you. Yeah, calorie dense, but tastes freaking so good. It is (laughs) hyper palatable. It's designed to be as addictive as possible. And it's marketed to us as sometimes health foods, right? Like, Oh, fortified with vitamin A and vitamin D and, and you know, whole grains and yeah, yeah, lots of fiber and uh, all natural or organic. And people are like, oh, this is healthy for me. It's only 100 calories, right? But, you know, people tend to overconsume that type of food and it's very easy to overconsume. And it, like I said, it's very cheap and affordable and convenient. And so we choose the path of least resistance. So gaining the weight kind of came pretty easy for me that first round. The way I structured the weight loss part was more of uh, maybe I would say a paleo-ish, like a whole food approach, but five or six small meals spread throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And that, that worked for me at the time. I did lose the weight. I gained 75 pounds in six months Wow! Uh, from, from no exercise, right? So no exercise, I ate probably around five to 7,000 calories per day. Um, I didn't really track it back then what I was, uh, you know, how much I ate, um, but I was, you know, eating roughly around that much. And it was mostly those processed foods that I mentioned. And, um, yeah, I gained 75 pounds of pure fat, went from like eight and a half percent body fat to like 32% body fat. Um, you know, I had a doctor monitor me throughout to make sure I wasn't going to die, but I did develop <laughs> a non-alcoholic fatty liver. Of course. Um, yes, my cholesterol, uh, was obviously off the charts mm-hmm. and, uh, my blood pressure was 167 over 113. Oh, wow. My testosterone as a 31-year-old dropped to the low 200s. So it affected me in a lot of different ways than I was expecting. It was and, and the most our, humbling experience. For our listeners mm-hmm. as well, in terms of the testosterone range, what should a, a normal range be for a 31-year-old, you know, since you dropped all the way to like 200? I believe it's about 500 to 700. Is that correct? Yeah, 500 to 700, but you'll have people upwards of like 1,200. You know, mm-hmm. just uh, sometimes it, I think there's a range of like, you know, 500 to 1,200. It's kind of like a healthy range for a 30 or, or, you know, 30-ish year old male. Yeah. Um, but yeah, low 200s is very, very low. Like yeah. that's... How <laughs> that's antsy were you? <laughs> How antsy were you for not doing any exercise at all from like a very fit and active person? That was really hard mentally because you, you have to understand for me, my whole life exercise or movement was part of my outlet. It was yeah. part of my stress reliever. And so not having that stress reliever, that outlet, I had to find a new outlet and that outlet became food, which is what happens to so many people where we turn to food to help us manage stress and food creates this vicious cycle because temporarily you'll get, I mean, you'll get these dopamine hits. I mean, I'll be totally honest with you eating cinnamon toast crunch, which is so delicious or ice cream (laughs) or whatever it is. Right. It gives you this little dopamine hit, right? Like, like you would get if you had a drug or a sip of alcohol, you feel this temporary sense of relief from the emotional pains of life that you're going through. Mm-hmm. And then it creates this dependency, this dopamine dependency of like, oh, I want that again. I want that again and again and again. And then before you know it, it's hard to break that cycle. And this is why so many people get addicted. It's because they turn towards you know, the substance that provides that dopamine hit anytime they're feeling 
anything uncomfortable or stressful or emotional and emotional pain that they're dealing with, we turn towards some type of substance to distract us or numb us from that emotional pain that we're feeling. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, food is the most accessible drug because you know, cocaine and heroin, you're, you, you kind of have to go out of your way to find that versus uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and yeah. Twinkies. You can just go to the grocery store anytime you want or DoorDash it, you know, or Instacart it to your house. Yes. So it creates this dependency cycle. It's, and this is why I'm so empathetic towards people who struggle with eat, uh, food addictions or emotional eating. Right. Because a lot of people in this industry mm-hmm. uh, kind of think like, oh, you stop being lazy. Just don't, you know, stop eating that food. And it's like telling a drug addict, just stop doing yeah, drugs. Just like, stop doing it's it. not that hard. Yeah, yeah, it's not that hard, especially when your emotions are tied to the substance that you've you know created this dependency on for years and decades. Now your brain is hardwired to reach for that thing that brings so much comfort and temporary relief from the pain. Yeah. that you do that for years and decades, it's it's really hard to break that cycle. And so this is what I learned from this doing this experiment, mm-hmm. and it was so humbling. So, okay, and uh, what about the yeah. the the, the weight loss part like how did you structure that so we, we touched okay. a bit upon the you know the gaining weight part the weight loss but i think a lot of listeners would be super interested to hear you know how did you manage to lose all that <laughs> you know overcome <laughs> all of the the challenges and then how can they then apply it themselves mm-hmm. uh, in their lives yeah that's a really good question so the way i structured it was to try to make it as simple as possible for people because mm-hmm. people think to go on a weight loss journey, it's got to be this this huge endeavor. Um, for me, as a as a dad, had, having two kids at the time, uh, having a full time job in the medical field, and then doing this on the side, I didn't have a lot of time to work out. So five days a week, I would mm-hmm. go to the gym for about forty to forty five minutes per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, three days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, were resistance training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would do supersets, and what supersets are are lifting weights, resistance training, but with minimal breaks in between. So you get the benefits of cardio while you're doing resistance training. So you're lifting weights, but your heart rate stays elevated throughout. So you're not taking breaks in between sets. You're just go, go, go doing the resistance training while your heart rate is elevated. So that's kind of gives you more bang for your buck, if you will. So I would do that Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And like I said, 40 minutes per day is not extreme. It's not like you know, I'm living in the gym for hours per day, but three days a week resistance training, Tuesdays, Thursdays were cardio days. And I would do those in the structure of high intensity intervals. Okay. So 20 to 30 minutes of maybe sprint for 30 seconds, walk for 30 seconds, sprint for 30 seconds, walk for 30 seconds, and then repeat that for a total of 20 to 30 minutes. You'll be dripping sweat. You'll be burning a ton of calories during that, that short amount of time. Yeah. And then Saturday and Sunday were active recovery days. Play with my kids, go for a walk, go for a hike, yoga, stretch. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I did on those days. Um, and then, yeah, and that's kind of how I structured my transformation uh, from an exercise perspective. For mm-hmm. Nutrition, I mentioned, you know, five to six small meals per day, high protein at every single meal, you know, moderate amount of fat, moderate amount of carbs, like, you know, maybe every once in a while I have some fruit. Um, or something like that. And it, like I said, it was a paleo-ish approach. It, it wasn't keto, it wasn't fasting. It was just you know five, six small meals per day. And then I did that for six months and was able to lose the 75 pounds and get back to fit, but with a whole new mindset, a whole new appreciation, way more empathy for those that struggle and a greater respect for people that struggle with weight loss or transformation because it was one of the hardest, most humbling things I've ever done. 
Um, luckily it turned out in my favor where I was able to get back to fit and get healthy again, but with a whole new focus on the, uh, and respect for the mental and emotional side of transformation, which I think is overlooked in the fitness industry and the healthcare industry, people kind of separate that and like, Oh, go talk to a therapist, figure that stuff out. But it's also connected. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I, I talk about nowadays. Yeah. And, and did you use the same sort of structure in terms of the high intensity uh, interval training for cardio, the supersets for weight training, and also the nutrition? Did you use the same exact structure for your second transformation recently? Uh, it was similar, not the exact same. It mm-hmm. was very similar. As far as the exercise portion goes, it was similar. I would say it, it was slightly altered because after 10 years of being in the industry, I, I definitely learned a few things and was able to adjust my, my routine to maximize the, cause the, the second journey, I only did it for four months yeah. in, of gaining and four months of losing. The right. first journey was six months and six months. So right. I shortened that window. Mm-hmm. So I really had to maximize, you know, um, the amount of, uh, results I brought in with the same amount of, uh, input. So I didn't want to go to the gym for two hours this time. I wanted to keep it under an hour, mm-hmm. five days a week. Mm-hmm. And I was able to follow that same structure. Nice. Nutritionally though, We'll get into keto and intermittent fasting and why that works so well for me as a 40-year-old because I did it as a 31-year-old, 30, 31-year-old mm-hmm. the first time. Right. Different metabolism, different hormones. We all know it's different as you age. Yeah. So I wanted to do something to show people for that age demographic of what works well for me now as a 40-year-old. So I implemented keto. I implemented intermittent fasting. I implemented cyclical keto, which we can talk about, and targeted keto. And, um, and then I changed the format during the, the, the weight gain and weight loss process to kind of be, make it more educational. Mm-hmm. So I tracked a lot more data. I had my whoop, I had my CGM, I had my blood work done. I did some experiments with different diets. So I actually did an experiment with dirty keto versus dirty paleo versus dirty vegan and dirty vegetarian and did my blood work to track the differences between those four diets, those uh-huh. four popular diets. And that data was extremely interesting Amazing. to show the differences. Yeah. Let's, so, let's get into talk it. About that. Let's, get stru- let's get straight into it. I mean, since we're talking about structure, we're talking about, you know, metabolism and, and nutrition. Um, yeah, let, let's share what you found in terms of different types of keto diet. And, and I know a lot of our listeners always ask, you know, should I do cyclical keto? Should I go keto all the time? Can I still get the benefit if I stop being keto for one day versus one week versus one month? So um, please yeah. do share like what's your insights um, that, that you've learned during your journey. Yeah, so my philosophy when it comes to the ketogenic diet and doing it effectively, there has to be some type of adaptation phase. So whether it's the first 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, I would say the longer the better because Mm -hmm. it allows your body more time to get adapted. Our bodies are great at at adapting to new environments, right? Humans are the ultimate adaptation machines. And um, if you can teach your body to become adapted to a new fuel source, or I mean, it's not really new, but it's new for a lot of people that have never been in ketosis, that have lived their whole life off of carbohydrates and glucose. Um, it is new for them. But our, our bodies, you know, from a, a historical perspective, were designed to run off of two different types of fuels, you know, glucose and then ketones. Um, and so there needs to, if you have never been into a ketogenic state, it's going to take some time to adapt to that new ketogenic state using fat as energy instead of carbohydrates as energy. And so 30 days, I think, is the minimum amount of time you should allow your body to adapt, where your body is really good at using ketones as a fuel source. 
Then from there, you can mess around with cyclical keto or targeted keto. The way I did it was I did the first 30 days as traditional uh, keto, like a 70% fat, 25% protein, 5% carbohydrates, which is pretty general, works for the, the, the majority of people. Obviously, there's some outliers there, and there, it's very individual. So you can adjust those macros according to you and your lifestyle and your goals and what's working, what's not working. But generally, that's kind of what I followed for the first 30 days. And then from there, I moved into more of a cyclical ketogenic diet, which is five days on, two days off, or six days on, one day off. So on those days, um, you know, I would stick with a strict ketogenic diet, like 70, 25, 5, like I was. But then on those high carb days, I would lower my fat. So protein would stay the same and I would kind of teeter totter it. So my fat was up here, protein stayed the same, carbs were down here for the ketogenic days. And then when I went, you know, carb cycling, so up my carbs, I would lower my fat, uh, uh, keep protein the same, and then increase my carbohydrate intake on those off days. And that's kind of the way I do my cyclical keto. And that's great for maintenance. That's great for people that don't want to be strict keto all the time. It can also work for people looking to gain some lean muscle mass by adding in uh, the glucose to increase glycogen stores when you're lifting muscle or when you're lifting heavy weights. Um, and I think it's it's a great um, tool for people that want to build some lean muscle mass on the ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a and then also for more of a, a maintenance long term approach if you don't want to be strict keto all the time. So that worked really well. Targeted keto is kind of where you are strategically adding in carbohydrates to fuel your performance. So if you're an athlete. If you're someone that wants to get more out of your workouts, once you're keto adapted, it's a very, um, I would say, powerful and effective tool to use to boost performance. Because what it's going to do is, you know, you're going to take, you know, maybe 20 grams or 30 grams of glucose 30 minutes before a workout. Mm -hmm. Your body's already glucose adapted, right? Yep. Most people's bodies are handle glucose really well. And yep. so if you've been keto adapted for 30, 60, 90 days and you add in glucose, it's going to feel like jet fuel. So adding in those 30 grams of carbohydrates, you're going to get this boost of energy to fuel yourself for a, a period of time. But once you burn through that glucose, which will happen pretty quickly, <laughs> now your body's ability to transfer over to ketones as the fuel source, you won't have a crash, yeah. right? You're not going to have this, this crash. You'll be able to effectively uh, turn over uh, very efficiently to using ketones as a fuel source to fuel yourself for the rest of the workout. Mm -hmm. But it just gives you this extra boost for people that are looking for better performance in the gym or looking to get more out of their workouts. So that's kind of a, an effective tool that I use as well and teach people how to do that. Uh, so adding in about 20, 30 grams for men pre-workout and then around 20, 30 grams post-workout. Mm -hmm. And that can be in the form of whatever you want it to be. I try to stick with, with whole foods, so probably fruit is my main source of carbohydrates. But people can use, you know, oats and grains and simple sugars if they want to. Um, you know, people use like maltodextrin and other simple sugars like that that get into the bloodstream even quicker. But you know, to each their own. I don't really care so much about that part. I think they all work really great. Um, <clears throat> but that's kind of how the difference between traditional keto, cyclical, and targeted keto that mm -hmm. I implemented. On the journey back to fit that's that's great explanation um that's why mm -hmm. i think it's such a great opportunity to talk to people like yourself with all these applica applications sort of experience because me coming in as a scientist i know a lot on the theoretical side of things i know about the studies for example like what you said about having glucose after workout it does 
um, help with recovery because you are then spiking insulin and insulin is then giving signals to really pull these substrates in and really replenish the storage system, either glycogen or um, you know um, uh, the, the other systems that you need for recovery, either repair for muscles or protein synthesis. So I think this is what you know, people are you know, sort of lacking in terms of information between um, theoretical and then application side of things. Um, and, and we know for a fact that in studies as well, when you have ketones, proteins and glucose present taken after workout and before bed, they saw an improvement after three weeks in terms of recovery, in terms of uh, work mm. output as well. So um, there you go. There's um, some, some more <laughs> you know, sort of tips in terms of how to uh, maximize your recovery period. Yeah. And oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that, that not to do a plug for HBMN, but seriously, adding an HBMN pre-workout and post-workout, I have noticed a huge difference in recovery. Um, I don't have any metrics or data to, to show that, but I know you guys have really uh, talked to me about that, about using it post-workout, which yes. I really didn't think about before, Yeah, but it does make a podcast. huge difference. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I talked to you about it. Um, Mike as well. And, and Chris Irvin, I think it was also on my podcast and, I didn't really think about it for recovery, but mm -hmm. um, a great tool for recovery as well because I didn't really think about it from that perspective, but it's, it's, it's true. It yeah, works great. I and, and for you listeners, um, what Drew just mentioned is um, the ketone IQ, which is an exogenous ketone that HUMN um, sells. Uh, it essentially puts you in ketosis within minutes because you are directly drinking um, uh, RN3-butene diol, which then gets converted into blood BHB, which is the main ketone body that mm -hmm. is used for metabolism and energy. So we've covered a lot on the physical <laughs> side, the, the transformation, the structure. Now let's get deeper into the emotional side of things, the mindsets. Mm. You know, what sort of, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about the relationship with food, the addiction <clears throat> and the, the dopamine. And it's a bit of emotional, it's, it's a bit of biochemistry in the brain as well. You know, dopamine and all these reward system that has been set up for decades before you yeah. switch to a healthier lifestyle. How, let's start with how did you, you know, overcome it? Like what sort of advice would you give our listeners if they're struggling with that in terms of uh, on their journey of losing weight? Yeah, let me dive into that because this is a component that is really overlooked in the fitness industry. I mentioned earlier how people separate their physical health from their mental, emotional, spiritual health. In yeah. my opinion, it's all tied together. There's a parallels between all, each of those. Mm -hmm. And if I could help people bridge those gaps to understand the connection between how your mental and emotional state affects your ability to do the physical things like diet and exercise like we all know we're supposed to do. And this is why having done Fit to Vet Fit twice now, I've learned so much about how our, our, our ability to do the physical stuff is first and foremost determined by our mental and emotional state. And so let me kind of paint this picture to answer your question so that people, one, first of all, that are listening to this feel understood and feel heard because I think there's a quote that I love. It says, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And so I want people to know uh, people like you, people like me, people in this industry really do care about people. Mm -hmm. uh, we really do care that, you know, humans are on the other end of this podcast listening and they have real issues and, and real challenges in life that affect their ability to show up for themselves from a physical perspective. So having done fit to fit twice now, I can testify to you that, that how important uh, doing the mental and emotional work 
is helpful for people to be able to show up and do the physical work because um, having uh, the second journey of Fit Fat Fit, which I won't dive into a whole lot just yet, but there was a, a, a part of that, which hopefully you don't mind me sharing. Um, it, I went through a breakup with my girlfriend in the middle of Fit to Fat Fit 2.0. This is in 2020. Um, and it was so, yeah, yeah, it sucked. It was really, really hard, but it, it, it really it really taught me a very powerful lesson because at first I was eating the food to gain the weight, right? It tasted good. It made me feel good, but I wasn't really struggling emotionally at the time. After a breakup, a really hard breakup, in the middle of this journey, it really affected me emotionally. I was very sad and depressed and lonely and feeling overwhelmed with these emotions. And then food became my medicine where the pint of Ben & Jerry's ice cream made me feel so much happier temporarily mm-hmm. um, for like 30 minutes. I felt great, right? Mm-hmm. It made me feel really good. The dopamine hit really makes you feel good. And it created this vicious cycle of, man, anytime I felt sad, lonely, or, or depressed, I would reach for Ben & Jerry's Netflix and chill dairy-free ice cream, which is my favorite, and or a glass of wine. And it was interesting how that, those you know comfort foods really comforted me in that time of despair. And it really this light bulb went off like, oh my gosh, this is why people emotionally eat. Because when they go through hard times, if they've had hard childhoods, if they have had hard uh, upbringings and trauma or abuse that they've had to deal with, we as humans, we don't like to sit still in emotional pain. And so what do we do? We look for escapes. And the easiest escape is food. I mean, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's sex and porn and TV shows and movies and social media and books and there's a million ways to escape and not yeah. all of those are unhealthy or mm-hmm. healthy. Some of them are healthier for sure, but we all look for ways to escape. Yeah. And so food, unfortunately is most people's escape. And then people develop this unhealthy relationship with food where the food becomes the medicine and creates this vicious cycle of dependency and addiction. And then they try and go on this weight loss journey and they try and willpower their way out of that addiction. And it's the same thing as a drug addict trying to willpower their way out of a drug addiction. Sure. Some people, miraculously can make it out of that but let's be honest most people are going to be stuck in that after three or four weeks of trying and failing and going through the hardships and this is why i preach so much about the mental and emotional side of transformation because if it was just physical we would have it figured out this obesity epidemic would be solved because people would just eat the, the right amount of calories and exercise every single day and get enough sleep and manage their stress and we'd all be healthy and fit yeah but they're not and why is that? Because we're emotional creatures, right? We're not robots. <laughs> we we have the strong emotions and yeah. people eat their emotions. And this is why I have so much empathy and understanding on the mental and emotional side for people that struggle. And this is why I'm trying to change this in the fitness industry so that people can understand if they did the inner work, if they went to therapy, if they meditated, if they journaled, if they did the gratitude list and positive affirmations and they got outside of nature and they learned how to love themselves as they are, not saying you, you stay stuck there, but loving yourself means wanting to progress, wanting to move forward, want, wanting to better yourself. It doesn't mean you hate yourself to skinny. It means you can love yourself to a better version of you, but operating at a place of self-love and learning to be grateful and happy and fulfilled now as imperfect as you are. And if I could help people start off from that base, then moving forward and doing the working out stuff and the dieting stuff and all the things we know we're supposed to do it becomes so much easier and more manageable versus this vicious cycle of trying to willpower the way out of this addiction and then failing at it and then considering themselves a failure because of that 
And then from there, they self-sabotage by eating more food and, and um, you know, numbing the pain even more with, you know, substances that aren't healthy for them. And then this happens year after year, decade after decade. This is why I'm trying to help people realize the connection between the mental emotional state and how that affects your ability to do the physical stuff. And that's why my, my brand, Fit to Fat Fit, is all about empathy first and helping people feel more understood so that they then can do the stuff we know we're, that, we're, that we know we're supposed to do, but from a place of self-love so that that stuff becomes more manageable and easier to do versus trying to hate yourself to skinny. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your personal story. Um, that was, you know, I, I bet that wasn't easy, you know, going through that journey. And um, second of all, I, I, I always tell my listeners or my audience whenever I give presentation at conferences is that before I am Dr. Latman, so the scientist or the research leader mm. of HBMN, I am a human first. And I have gone through this myself, you know, being overweight and then losing the weight and going through the journey myself. Although it's mm -hmm. not as, as drastic as, as you, I, I lost about <laughs> like 45 pounds in like four months at that point. It was like when wow. I was 22 in undergrad. And then I gained Congrats. a lot of weight and then True. lost about 20 pounds in the past year or so. So, you know, I think all of us, every now and again, you know, throughout life, it, we, we sort of go through this sort of health journey, you know, of our own, like whether or not to, to eat healthier, to work out more, to sleep better, to manage stress better, or just manage our, our life to be in order. And all of us, you know, do struggle at some point. And I think empathy, as you said, is the key to all of this, because when you realize there's somebody apart from yourself that actually cares, um, that's when you sort of tell yourself, actually, you don't, do you know what, what I'm doing right now actually matters um, instead of hating myself too skinny, you know, like, yeah. um, don't need to hate your body in order to make that transformation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of um, current protocols and current diet that you're currently using for yourself mm -hmm. and for your clients. Yep. Um, tell us more about those. Yeah. So I've kind of, uh, changed the way I do, uh, my diet. I think for me, when I discovered keto back in 2015 or so, I was all in like, this is like the most amazing thing that I ever experienced because there was this Remember that movie um, with uh, Bradley Cooper, Lim uh, Limitless? Yeah, Limitless, Limitless I think. Yeah, he takes yeah, this, yeah, yeah clear yeah. pill, and he's just, it's a super smart drug, right? Right. I felt like keto was that for me. Like, I felt this in, in this extreme amount of mental clarity that I never experienced before. Mm -hmm. I felt like I could do so much more throughout my day having to only eat one or two meals. So I didn't, I didn't feel hungry or hangry throughout the day. I was able to go longer periods between meals. I was able to get more work done. My brain was sharper. Uh, the increase in cognitive function and mental clarity was through the roof. It was like night and day compared to before. And I loved, loved that feeling. And I, was, and I was still able to perform in the gym and do hard workouts and, and maintain this physique that I had. Obviously, since then, I've kind of changed the ways I, I do it because for me, I just feel better now that I'm a 41-year-old. Um, you know, with lower, a lower fat approach, higher protein, and then I'll add in carbs. I'll eat fruit. I'll eat rice every now and then. I don't need to be as strict as possible. And actually after our podcast, when you came on my podcast, yeah. I saw the benefits of having the mental clarity without having to be strict keto because being strict keto for me 
is 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 great for my mental clarity but i felt like for my performance i felt like um i was looking for something different so adding in you know not a huge amount of carbs i still keep it probably around 100 grams of carbs per day mm-hmm. and mostly from whole foods um i felt like i could do more in the gym i can push harder in the gym and, and get more out of my workouts with some carbohydrates and the and timing of much a carbohydrate intake as well the, the timing of a carbohydrate intake also matters yeah and so that's kind of i do like a targeted ketogenic approach where i'll eat you know carbs pre-workout carbs post-workout mm-hmm. but then i'll do a shot of uh of the ketone esters from hvmn um which does has a does does have a glucose lowering effect so i'll take it with my carbohydrates and then i'll i'll eat two meals lunch and dinner mm-hmm. the, which are mostly protein and veggies mm-hmm. and that's kind of just what i stick with and then i'll maybe have some sometimes at night i'll have a little bit of fruit like some watermelon or some berries or something like that in small amounts and i've noticed that that uh, helps my sleep so cuz i track my sleep data on my whoop app and it just kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always about tweaking and finding things and upgrading uh, to, to fit uh, or to find what fits better with my lifestyle. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. I don't feel the need to be in strict ketosis all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something to being able to have something like a ketone ester to boost that mental clarity that I love from keto. Um, but, uh, you know, not having to be strict keto all the time because, you know, I have two daughters yeah. and you know, I don't want to restrict them from having to eat carbohydrates. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a battle. Like, I don't, I don't know if you have kids, Dr. Lap, but like, you know, preteen <laughs> ages no. are really hard. <laughs> They're really hard to get them to be like, Hey, you have to eat this food because it almost, I'm, I come from a very strict religious background and I have since left that. So I'm very cognizant and aware of, okay, is this becoming a religion where I'm having to only eat, you know, foods that are keto friendly. And if they're not keto friendly, then they're bad or a sin. And I'm kind of like, okay, I don't like that approach. It doesn't feel good to me in, in doing that where food is then labeled as good or bad, you know, uh, good or evil. And I don't, I just don't like that approach. And so, um, I'm trying to be an example for my daughters and incorporate lots of different types of foods, mostly whole foods, but let's be honest, like kids, they're going to eat their Takis. They're going to eat their like uh, fruit snacks. And I'm not going to be like, Hey, you can't eat that. That's bad. That's evil. It's just more so like, hey, here's the consequences of eating these foods. Feel free to eat them if you want to, but there's going to be some consequences. And yeah. kids at this age, they just don't care. So, right. <laughs> and they metabolize them just fine. They metabolize <laughs> them very, very efficiently. And that's why I always tell people the demonization of a certain substrate, right? Like it used to be fats, you know, fats and cardiovascular disease. And then now it's like glucose and diabetes. And, you know, even though we are a company that, upholds the idea of having ketones in your body you know some better than none and we do sell exogenous ketones i always tell people it's not an all be all sort of sort of solution right like you said there are certain types of activities that you may benefit from having glucose in the system and there are endurance athletes that actually benefit from the dual hybrid uh, fuel system where you have access to both ketones and glucose at the same time and that is what puts you you know ahead of your other competitors where you can last longer you can go faster go further because you have access to both um, uh, substrates so it's not um, you know, one substrate is, uh, is all bad and the other is all good. It's about yeah. having some form of ketones to have that mental clarity. And it does provide a uh, very efficient fuel for your brain, but also limiting your glucose, especially if you're not active that day, 
like limiting your glucose intake and not constantly spike your insulin and making sure your insulin is not at a chronic elevated levels. That to me is more important than picking one substrate and then cutting it all out. Yeah, I like I like looking at carbohydrates as kind of like earning your carbohydrates. And that, what mm -hmm. I mean by that is, you know that glucose is a very efficient fuel source. But yeah. if you're sitting all day, you don't really don't need the, the extra carbohydrates. You really exactly. don't need. The, so if you're working out, you're active and you're fit. Yeah, that's a great way to look at carbohydrates of fueling you, you know, for that activity. Uh, but you mentioned the dual fuel approach and actually use that during my 100 mile run that I did in 2020 before Fit Fat to Fit 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked great. It was an I, I trained, I practiced in a ketogenic state, so mm -hmm. fasted. I would do my long runs fasted, but then on race day, I would take you know a, a sip of the ketone esters with some carbohydrates. And having those dual fuels kept me going for the 24 hours to complete my 100 mile race. And actually learned that strategy from Zach Bitter, who at the time held the world record for the fastest 100-mile run, I think, um, on a treadmill, I believe. But anyways, I learned that that technique from him, and it saved me. Because the year before, I tried it, mm -hmm. um, and I failed. But I didn't have that, that dual-fuel approach. So, <laughs> Right, right, right. That's, that's great. So I've got a question that's more of a personal interest, uh, what I would love sure. to learn, you know, asking you as a personal trainer as well. So like around June last year, I, I sort of plateaued in terms of my weight and my, my workout and physique. So I decided to, you know, hire a personal trainer and he was great and he gave me, uh, you know, a, a really structured program and I basically increased my training load and decreased my um, resting time between sets and it, it worked great. You know, I lost weight, I built a lot of muscle. And then now I have, again, reached another plateau, right? But I've already been working out about one hour and a half in the gym, five days a week. So do I just add on or what do you suggest, hmm. you know, changing in order to break that plateau and, and, you know, improve further? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, I think, like I mentioned before, humans are the ultimate adaptation machine. And so mm -hmm. your body has gotten really well at adapting to whatever output you're you're doing with your body right now and so now it's maybe restructuring the type of exercises you're doing uh you could increase the volume you could increase the intensity you could um increase the time of tension uh, or the the uh, time under tension with the muscle groups that you're doing so sl a slower uh concentric movement and a faster eccentric movement with your with your lifts and so it maybe doesn't need to you be know, heavier it doesn't need to be heavier so okay. let's say you're doing pull-ups you know, you do a one count on the way up, so you mm -hmm. go up really fast, yep. and then do a four count on the way down, and that right there will be just increase the time under tension. But same thing with squats and uh, bench press, and just even push-ups or body weight. Can people can do this with body weight exercises as right, well? Right. And it just makes it that much harder, right? And yeah, this, it sounds painful just doing, hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. But one thing I've been doing recently with some of my followers is doing these thirty-day challenges. Um, and when, when the one we did last month, which was really great for just um, kind of shocking the system, is mm -hmm. doing 10,000 reps in 30 days. And so what that equals is 333 reps per day of a certain movement. So let's say you're looking to improve your lower body. You could do 333 reps of squats or lunges um, or, or burpees. Um, you, if you're looking to improve your upper body, you could do 333 reps of push-ups. And that one right there is probably my favorite one for males that are looking to increase you know their triceps their chest and their shoulders which kind of gives you this this bigger look up in your upper body 
And it's one of those things where you think, there's no way I can do 333 reps per day. But if you break it out, it's only about 21 reps per hour of 16 hours per day. You're awake for 16 hours per day, roughly. Mm -hmm. And 21 reps per hour is one rep every three minutes or so. And so if you look at it that way, it's not that hard. But what it does is it kind of shocks your system to where um, you're, you constantly have a pump throughout the day. You are um, you know, increasing the volume that you're doing because uh, that's a lot of volume in, in a short amount of time. Yeah. But it's just a great way to shock the system instead of doing the same you know, uh, three sets of 10 at the gym right. and you know, the same movements. Uh, looking for different things like that. Also, I've implemented something called rucking which is adding about you know 40 to 50 pounds on a backpack and then walking up a hill and down a hill. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to this book by Michael Easter called The Comfort Crisis that talks about how that can both increase lean muscle mass um, and increase your cardiovascular capacity at this in the same time. Right. And it's easier on your joints than running is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, running isn't going to help you build lean muscle mass, but by adding a, you know, a, a backpack of 40 pounds or so can help. Exactly. And so it's just a different, uh, method of training that maybe your body isn't used to. So, so breaking out of that, uh, environment that your body has been so conditioned for maybe, like you said, going to the gym five days a week, trying some new training methods, some new exercises that you haven't done. Um, also I like to do full body movements, um, three times a week. Mm. So full body on Monday, full body on Wednesday, full body on Friday, and you're, you're going to be pretty sore, you know, yeah. uh, doing a full body, uh, movements. But I think you'll get more out of your workouts. And um, and so it just depends what your goals are. If yeah. you're looking to lean out and, yeah. and lose fat, that's a whole different approach. If you're looking to gain lean muscle mass, um, you know, you have to increase your calories, be in a caloric surplus to feed those muscles. So it just depends on what your goals are so uh, specifically. That, that's, a, that's a great point. That, you know, one, one thing I want to ask you, and I know this has a lot of debate online about, you know, is it possible to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time, you know, the, the, the mm. traditional, the <laughs> traditional bulking cutting phase versus the lean bulk, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts <laughs> yeah. around this? I yeah, controversial, that's a really but, good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very, very controversial. I think in a perfect world, if you had nothing else to do, but that it is doable, it's, it's still very difficult. But if you have responsibilities like a job and a family and work, it's really, really hard to, to do that all in one. Um, I have found personally a, 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 a ketogenic approach to building lean muscle mass is kind of the most effective at putting on lean muscle mass while keeping your fat mass down. And so adding in, you know, a higher protein, kind of like a, I think Dr. Dominic Diagostino talks more about this, but a, a, a modified Atkins approach. So it's mm -hmm. very high protein, um, you know, high fat, low amount of carbohydrates, but you're lifting heavy weights and, and you're in a caloric surplus. Mm -hmm. um, what I found from my own personal experience and, and other anecdotal evidence of people doing this approach, they're able to build lean muscle mass while keeping their fat mass down. I think building lean muscle mass while burning fat is going to require maybe two workouts per day. Right. Um, I've seen people do it with like, you know, doing the one session of heavy lifting. Right. Yes, exactly. And that, that, that is an approach that can work, but like I said, how much of your <laughs> how much of your time do you have to dedicate to that type of uh, approach? But it is, I, th I think, it is possible if you do a DEXA scan and you dedicate yourself for, I would say, a good ninety to one hundred twenty days of consistent effort mm -hmm. is is a possibility.
Got it. Got it. So, so yeah. depending on the structure of the workout, depending on the goals, um, you might yeah. gain body mass. You got, might gain lean body mass, but also a bit of fat, and then you know you can sort of dial up the cardio to really focus on the fat burning to lean up for yeah. any occasions for photo shoots and whatever. I think that's a good advice. Yeah. Um, so onto that as well, I have something. You know, one of the uh, questions that I wrote down to ask you is, are there any unpopular opinion that came out of your journey? that you suddenly realize, you know, this is actually what I found out throughout my journey, throughout my transformation, but it may be an un unpopular opinion, um, you know, versus what people are talking out there. I mean, it's, yeah, what, mm -hmm. what have you found? That's a good question, an unpopular opinion. I think there's a few components of that. I think me just even bringing in the mental and emotional component to transformation is kind of unpopular because you know, self-love and empathy isn't really sexy. Like uh, people are, uh, if I sell a 30-day self-love program mm -hmm. versus a 30-day get shredded program. That's the, right. The, right. the marketing, the marketing around it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The get shredded program is going to sell way more because that's kind of what, what is the hook for people. People think that's what they want. But um, what I found, uh, Dr. Lat, with my approach is I know that the mental and emotional stuff is not the sexy stuff right now. Like that's not the hook I hook people with. The hook is my fit fat to fit transformation. People love seeing the photos of before and after of me gaining the weight and losing the weight. And they see like the ripped body. And I think what happens is that is what hooks people. But then they, they buy my programs, they consume my content, and they realize that, oh, wait, he's talking about the mental and emotional side of transformation. And he's really touching on some, some things that are important to me, like emotional eating. And wow, that sounds really true. Maybe there's some truth to this doing the inner work that he's talking about. And then that is where they start to uh, change their perception of like, oh, okay, wait a second. I can love myself mm -hmm. and still work on this better version of myself. Loving yourself isn't just, you know, like you said, the body positivity movement of just, you know, accepting myself as I am without, you know, taking care of myself because that's not self-love either. Yeah. Um, self-love, in my opinion, is loving yourself as you are, realizing that you're worthy uh, as you are yeah. while you continue to work on this better version of yourself because as humans we want to improve we want to progress exactly and that's just the way we're designed i think yeah. anyone to, to to stay stagnant in life would be really really hard to stay happy and fulfilled and staying you know where you are in, in your life i think everyone wants to move forward and progress in this life and so that's kind of what i would say wasn't it would be an unpopular opinion but i think once people that know me and consume my content and you know i think people like you you kind of know where i'm coming from yeah versus absolutely. people that that's yeah. Yeah. You. It was very well explained. Um. I definitely mm -hmm. resonate very well, especially in the past year. Uh, the journey that I've been through, um, was definitely a realization of my worthiness because uh -huh. previously I have always sort of have a yardstick to my worthiness, and that yardstick is usually based on objective measures. How many degrees I got, how, you know, how, what kind of job I get, how much do I get paid, you know, how successful I am, how many, you know, how many books I've read, how many journals, how many papers I've published. Um, but at the end of the day, like the most fundamental worthiness is, as you said, you love yourself for who you are as a human. And I never actually took time off and tell myself that. Um, and a series of, of events that occurred in the past year that led me into practicing meditation. And that gave mm -hmm. me a lot of insight to really dissociate myself from my train of thought and realize yeah. that I, for the longest time, 
never knew that I was worthy as Latman, so as the person, but I was worthy as the doctor, I was worthy as the research leader, I, I was worthy of something that is external, that was yeah. peripheral, rather than something that's fundamental. And yeah. after realizing that, suddenly I made breakthrough in my gym, in my, in my workouts, I felt more energetic, I literally just subjectively felt happier. And that yeah. in and of itself, it's sexy. So, so, you know, the challenge here for you listeners is that make self-love sexy. You know, let, mm. let's make this trend, right? Self-love <laughs> is sexy and you can, anyone can make that uh, sexy. Anyone can realize that. Um, it takes yeah. some work and it is sometimes you need help uh, from other people, some, some, some help from other external sources, but you can make it, you can do it. Um, yeah. So um, I've got one last question, um, which sure. is something that I added uh, as I revive this, this um, HBMN podcast. I asked all my guests, yeah. what is health and modern nutrition mean to you personally? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's something that's it's ever evolving, that is never stagnant and yep. it's never end all be all. Like I think it's because, like I said, 10 years ago, the mainstream of the knowledge that we had at the time was like, oh, it looks like this. For me, it's more of a, what I would say a, a conscious fitness approach. And what I mean by a conscious fitness approach for health and modern nutrition, like you mentioned, is tying in the mental, emotional, spiritual side to a physical transformation. Because if you go into a physical transformation just thinking it's just physical, you're going to realize very quickly how much of your emotions, your mental state, affect your ability to do the physical stuff. And so yeah. for me, conscious fitness embodies the physical with the mental and the emotional and even the spiritual, I would say it all ties together. And so if you can see fitness from a new lens, a new perspective, I think it's a new age way of doing fitness where it's not this toxic relationship of, okay, one day it, when I get this body, then I'll be worthy, then I'll be happy. If I get fit and I get skinny, then I'm successful. Mm -hmm. And if I'm overweight and I don't have that body, then I'm a failure and people will you know, not love me. I think that's a story we've bought into for years and decades based on what society tells us. But I think a way to break free from that is, is this conscious fitness approach of learning how to operate out of a place of self-love first and foremost, so that doing the hard and comfortable things becomes easier and more manageable. And you start to see those uncomfortable things as not a chore, but as something that you're worthy to receive the benefits of. Yeah. Because we all, you know, dieting, yeah, it's hard, it's uncomfortable. Exercise, it's hard, it's uncomfortable. But it's a part of growth. But if we could see the hard and comfortable things as a blessing yeah. and as something that is tied to our worthiness, then it's like, oh, instead of, you know, you start to fall in love with the process. You start to fall in love with the doing the uncomfortable things. And then that way, the results become a byproduct of living that healthy lifestyle consistently over time, but from a place of worthiness and self-love. And that's what conscious fitness is for me. And that's kind of what my brand is evolving into is this conscious fitness approach. Um, you know, so that's why for me, I have people meditate and journal, do a, a daily gratitude journal and positive affirmations. And, um, you know, that's kind of uh, how I help people develop some self-love. There's some other things I do with my programs that I really dive deeper into doing the inner work yeah. so that the outer work is easier and more manageable for them. And that's kind of where I think the fitness industry hopefully is evolving into and changing and shifting yeah. instead of this 
you know, the, I, I do think there's a value in the David Goggins and the, the, the Jocko Willinks of the world that we need to have that kind of mentality some of the time. Mm-hmm. But I think there needs to be a balance of like, okay, I can tap into the, my inner David Goggins and do some hard things. Yeah. But if I'm doing it from a place of self-love, then it's not a, a form of punishment. Then it's a form of self-love that, oh, self-love is doing hard things. Self-love is doing the uncomfortable things because yep. that's what brings happiness and fulfillment in the long term. Versus the short term, yeah. I'm going to be uncomfortable. So hopefully that makes sense. Absolutely. And because you love yourself, you want to grow, you want to improve. And that's why you do the yeah. hard things. And, and one of the things that I learned during you know, my meditation journey is that nothing is permanent, right? So whenever yeah. they say whenever there is suffering, it signifies that something in your life is changing. And the, the less um, adherence and the less sort of latching on that you put onto things that you have in your life, the better it is for you to accept um, the changing and, and just accept them as what they are. And because nothing is permanent anyway, when you come to terms with it, that suffering will, yeah. will, will definitely lessen. Um, and I think that's definitely one of the biggest lessons I've learned um, during, awesome. during um, our meditation. But um, well, congrats. thank you. Thank you very so much. Cool. Um, yeah. Last but not least, I would like to offer our platform for you to tell our listeners where to find you, you know, what, what, what you stand for and, and, and your brand, your, your, your website. Um, please go ahead. Yeah. So my, it's very easy to find me. It's just at fit number two, fat number two fit. And that's all my social media handles. It's my website. It's my podcast. It's my first book. Um, so you can find me at fit to fat to fit.com. And find out all my stuff. I have uh, 30 day challenges that I do with this conscious fitness approach. I have two books uh, Fit to Fat to Fit is the first one of my first journey. And then Complete Keto is kind of my version of keto uh, with the mental and emotional side tied into it, like I mentioned. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of uh, who I am and where you guys can find me. So thank you again for having me on, Dr. Lat. And um, appreciate it. Amazing. Now you're most welcome and mm-hmm. thank you for coming on. And guys, uh, do follow uh, Drew. I follow him myself and I find his mm-hmm. content very inspiring. Sometimes, you know, when I have a hard day, you know, tired and, and seeing <laughs> Drew like just doing all these supersets, I'm like, you know what? Time to gym. And it's time to go to the gym because I love myself. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, it's, there you go. That's, that's how you should, you should, you should, you know, kind of, kind of think about it rather than saying like, go to the gym, you know, you, you know, all these you know, vile yeah. terms and all these <laughs> derogatory terms is like, you know, who is this? And, you know, why aren't you working out? Instead, you know, I get to go to the gym because, you know, I have got an able-bodied uh, self to yeah. do all these weights and, and exercises. So um, it has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for being here and um, hope to see you again soon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. If you have enjoyed the episode, please like, share, and subscribe. And if you have any comments or feedback, please leave it in the comment section. You can find us at HVMN on all social media platform and myself at Latmanso on all social media platform as well. The HVMN podcast and myself are powered by Ketone IQ, the most effective way for you to elevate your blood ketone levels for optimal cognitive and physical performance as well as metabolic health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.